0: This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik, by progress. Hello, and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Chris Gardner. Hello, everybody. How you doing, Chris? Good. We're here at Code Palooza 2017. How are you enjoying the event so far?
1: I, I am enjoying it. The The venue took a little getting used to, a little kind of smaller hallways, but other than that, content's been great.
0: Yeah, we are both veterans of this event, and this is probably uh, combined like 10 years, but uh, about five each for us pretty much, huh?
1: Yeah, been to
0: all of them, been so I, I don't them. remember when the first one was. but So that would be, I think... This will be seven for you, six for me, something like that. Uh, I was at Build last year, missed it at, missed out on uh, a fun event, but uh, it's always been a good one. And uh, lots of great speakers, lots of uh, good sessions and, uh, and after events and all, all the
1: good stuff that makes a great conference. Oh, yeah. and, and there's always a special place in my heart for this conference particularly because it was actually the first one I ever spoke at as a speaker. So Oh, Awesome very cool uh, so Chris tell us a little bit about you what do you do So I am, I mean, your standard stuff. I'm your Microsoft MVP. I'm also one of the regional leads for the MCT programs. I know all about training and and that type of thing. Uh, I'm currently a senior software engineer for a company called Trainer Road. We make uh, training software for cyclists that, you know, goes into all the trainers and sets workouts for them and keeps track of their statistics and stuff like that on their cloud team. Uh, And I run the DevSpace Technical Conference down in Huntsville, Alabama, and I'm a former university teacher. Uh, This is my first semester not teaching in a while because uh, my new job, just time zones and whatever, I, I couldn't get the same mm-hmm. time slots I was.
0: So one of the first shows that I did uh, as part of the Eat Sleep Code podcast, we talked about being self-taught developers. Now, you, yourself, you have a lot of formal education. Uh, what, what are some of the degrees that that
1: you've gotten, Chris? So I have a... Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, a Bachelor's of Science in Math, and a Master's of Science in Computer Science. Wow, that's impressive. Congratulations. So it just, you you put enough money and time into it and you can get any degree you (laughs) want. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. What are some of the reasons...
0: Uh, for yourself or maybe uh, some reasons that others might see uh, to invest that time and money because it it is a lot of time and and it can be considerable amounts of money and it's a current uh, problem that I think our society faces uh, not only in the United States but even some places
1: abroad where it's very expensive to go to school and it's especially in America it's very expensive to go to school Um, I was... My, my path to all my degrees and everything was a little strange because as I came out of high school, um, I originally went to a college uh, and was there for two years and then dropped out of there and started working professionally in the computer industry. and I was like, oh, I don't need this comp sci degree. I'm already doing it and, and completely left education for three or four years until I kind of, it was no longer about, hey, I need to go get this comp sci degree. It was, I've been learning to love learning, which is why I went back and switched completely out to the philosophy degree and did the BA in philosophy and completely paid for that myself. So it actually took me something like 10 years to finish that first bachelor's because Mm -hmm. I was paying for it as I went along. Um, But it it was less about needing to learn computer science to be in the industry and more about finally figuring out, you know, a bachelor's degree is about having a, you know, jack of all trades, breadth of knowledge, not necessarily being good at anything, but having a, a general understanding of everything and, and learning that love of learning. Uh, along the way, because of a, of a job I had, we were they were like, you know, it would help us for contracts if you'd get a degree in a technical field. And I discovered that the university I was at right before I finished my BA in philosophy, had a BA in math. So I'm like, oh, well, math will work and I can just jump on a couple extra courses. But then we were looking at transfer credits and stuff from when I was previously in college. And they're like, you know, you could change this to a BS if you took one extra math course or one extra English course. Had to take Mm -hmm. tech writing. So that's how I ended up getting the two degrees. And then through all that, it it was the learning to love learning. And it wasn't about I need to know this type of thing. It was I needed to learn how to think through this type of problem. Uh, The traditional comp sci degree completely bored me. But when I was taking philosophy, which was how to think about a problem, and then on my math degree, it was all theoretical math. So it was how to think about problems and how to deal in this abstract way. I found a lot of value that came back to my day job in programming because I I knew new tricks of how to think through problems and not be tied to something specific. After I'd been doing that for long enough, uh, I decided to go back for my master's because I'm like, hey, what's 10? but what's, what's eight classes in a paper at this point in time, right? <laughs> so I went back and got my master's in comp sci. And when you're at the master's level, it's all very theoretical. And, and it, the, the joke is, is I wrote more papers in my comp sci degree, my comp sci master's, than I wrote programs because it was all about learning how to, to see the industry trends and, and those types of things. Uh, and as I was defending my thesis, I apparently did a very good job, and they offered me a job to, to teach at the university as an adjunct uh, one class a semester. So for about three years, I actually taught at the university, and I taught a discrete mathematics course in the comp sci department. But I found by doing that, the problem with academia is, is academia feeds off of academia, Mm -hmm. So you get a person who went to college and they got a degree and they stayed in and got a master's and they stayed in and they got a PhD and they were never really in the real world. And a lot of your bigger universities have this problem. So they're approaching everything, not from a practical standpoint, but from a, hey, here's the, here's the academia I've lived in for 20 years. And that's why a lot of the students don't see the value. So I was... I always made it a point when I was teaching to say not just, Hey, here's this material I need to learn, but here's where it applies. And here's how, you know, this type of thinking will help you in your careers and very much tried to cross apply everything I did to be like, look, there is a point to this. You just won't realize and appreciate it till five years down the road in your career. Because when you first get out, of course, you're going to get the junior dev job. You're just going to be doing that uh, for lack of better terms, coder monkey. You just have to to grind out code and grind out code. And then as you start getting to where you're doing more theoretical and planning, that's when mm-hmm. all this stuff will pay off. And I don't think there's enough focus on proving that point in academia right now.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you hit on an interesting point that uh, it kind of kept me from pursuing interests in uh, classroom style learning for, for software development. And that is, you know, you, you talked about somebody that's been locked into the academic studies for so long that you know they're teaching but they're not out experiencing real world problems and solving those problems in the industry so did you notice a lag behind in like the types of technology that were being taught Um, i mean you think about javascript for example a new framework is invented like every
1: 10 minutes um, how does and yet some universities yeah, don't even teach JavaScript, and it's exactly. conceivably the most important language on the planet right now. Whether we like it or not, we're not going to hold that judgment. But it's everywhere, but none of the formal departments are teaching it. I think Stanford now is, but very few are. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that you're, you're building a basis
0: to, uh, you know, learn all of those things upon while you're in school. But um, that there was always a part of me that felt like I was missing out on something.
1: So did you see that in, in that experience? I think, let me think of how I want to phrase this, the problem for that part of experience, you're correct, but that is not the problem of academia itself. That is the problem that most people think, I'm going to go to college to get a computer science degree and they're going to teach me how to program and I'm going to be an awesome programming. And computer science is not about computer programming. It is a first part of the program stepping block so that you can then understand the theoretical parts of how does a computer work and how does an operating system work and what are the differences between language paradigms and the actual formal stuff that happens later. And there's really bad PR around computer science to do that. There are colleges where you can get computer programming degrees. Mm-hmm. And by the time you come out, you will be that, you know, complete programming person you want to. But that's not really the the point of uh college-based computer science, and I didn't understand that until 10 years after, you know, I I'd left a comp sci program and then came back through college and then came back and did my master's and was like, oh, computer science is not computer programming. And I don't think anyone ever explains that. Um, if you're pretty much done writing code by the end of your, your sophomore year, and it's all in theoretics and... and Algorithm analysis and things like that. That to your standard person that just wants to write code, they don't care about. It. Why do they need to know a data structure or a sorting routine? It's all built into all the languages these days, mm-hmm. so they don't they don't find that value. Not they don't see the value of. Well, the reason you learn all this is one so you understand how this piece of silicon that is driving everything works. But also occasionally, like you're in an embedded environment and you can't pull in this library and you need to write the the one yeah. small part, and it's it's important to understand the theory behind it.
0: Yeah, it, you know, you kind of talked about a sort in there. Um, you also kind of need to understand what's going on inside that sort, even though it's already been written for you and it's inside of a framework somewhere, uh, because it may not be the most efficient way to sort something just because it's canned and it's in the framework.
1: Right. I mean, there's there's the bread and butter... The, the best worst case, so to speak, sort, which is called the quick sort, um, which is really, really good on really big, very randomized data sets. But the quick sort itself, if you have a, the, the amount of overhead to do it, if you have a not very sorted list or you have a smaller list, it actually ends up taking longer than some bad thing, which is very quick and very efficient. Um, I know like in .net now the sorting routines will actually switch the routines it does based on your list itself. So they the frameworks are getting better about it. But you are correct. If you know your data, if you know that hey, I need to sort this list but that's because I'm adding one or two things that I then need to get sorted into place, a non-efficient thing like an insertion sort is actually much quicker than like a a a quick sort because of the amount of overhead that comes on top of a quick sort. So there is some value to learning those pieces that, but again, as I said a second ago, it's, you have to tell the the students, you're not going to appreciate any of this for quite some time. And and there's a very big delayed gratification. I don't know how much you remember about being 20 years old, but delayed gratification isn't something they're really good at. So. Uh,
0: yes. I remember needing money for things and trying to find the best way to fulfill that need. And the, the shortest path of resistance yep uh, was not coming coming into even more debt yeah and so um I, I definitely feel uh more um even more for people that are in the n- younger generation than myself that are having to go through the same experience in their 20s because i think it's even rougher now uh because those costs are so much higher
1: oh yeah i i i don't know how that people today afford it. I mean, I I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity to take my time and do it because of love and pay for it as I went along, because I was already being very well paid as a, as a programmer at the time and and paying and, you know, taking it a class at a time at, at the evening. Uh, You hear these people that are racking up student debt on student loans. And, you know, even, even if they make more money because they get their degree, they're paying off their student loans and not getting any of that money until 20 years later. And I, I don't know if I would have done it, if that would have been the option. Yeah, uh,
0: that, that was one of the questions I was hoping to clear up. So I think that question still is out there, and uh, maybe people can form their own opinions on that. And uh, uh, actually, if, you, if you'd like to leave feedback, uh, you can go to our SoundCloud page and uh, leave feedback there as well. Chime in. Uh, let us know your opinion on that. Um, uh, Chris and I are probably about the same age, so we, we've been through this experience in the past already. And you know, me having children and, and you as well um, have kids that are going to have to go through this.
1: Yep. And
0: I, uh, we're we're looking at the prices and just we're astonished at, at how much um, college is going to cost. It. Are you seeing the same thing?
1: I, I am. Uh, d- 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 And there are colleges out there that are trying to do things to fix the problem, uh, but I don't think it's widespread enough. And I, I saw an interesting talk not too long ago at another conference, I think it was at Music City Code, where they were talking about why these coding bootcamps are becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And and the concept that coding is now becoming almost more like a blue-collar job, and you need the, the people that don't necessarily need the theory and just need to know how to write code, and we need to get that code written. And then over time, we can build them up to be more of the designer and architect things. And I actually see the model moving more that way. And I think that's why a lot of these coding boot camps are becoming more, it's like, tr- teach me the trade mm-hmm. so I can start doing stuff. And then as they learn to love that problem solving, hopefully then they can have the money to be able to to go for the higher education part and learn the theoretical part behind it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it would be great if these coding boot camps, and I, from working at a university, I understand why this is not logistically feasible. They're, they're not, the only thing they get is a, hey, we taught you how to do this. Now you can go get a job and start working. But since there's nothing like an associates behind it, all of that time and money ends up not being able to go towards a degree if they want to go that route. Uh-huh. So that also discourages, you know, hey, I, I don't want to start over from scratch now that I've been it here. So I, I almost wish there was a way that we could find way in academia to go, oh, you've been through this parts. At least let us get rid of these parts of your requirements. Yeah, maybe some
0: kind of credit transfer accreditation type of system.
1: I know a awesome. lot of universities now will take like industry certifications, like any of your Microsoft certifications, any of your CompTIA certifications, Net Plus, Security Plus, and they have a way to turn those into to club credits for classes. So we start, we are starting to move there as an industry. Um, I just don't think they're necessarily applied in the correct places yet. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear. Uh, I think some, some of the boot camps, especially one
0: that we have here in Louisville, it's called Code Louisville, um, helps uh, bring in a, a much more diverse uh, workforce as well, uh, because they're able to reach people that can't normally access uh, computer systems or uh, education Um, and things like that and uh, they they've made it free through the Louisville Public Library and um, we have mentors and things like that that get involved in that system and uh, there's a little bit of funding from if I understand correctly the public works program and uh, though I think those things are really great uh, for getting people involved but those aren't you know your normal academic approaches to learning computer science
1: yeah it's it's very much a pragmatic trade type thing it's it's we'll teach you the trade of programming because we need programmers Mm -hmm. but you're not going to in in a six to 12 month boot camp we're not going to get you thinking theoretically of how to algorithmically solve problems we're going to say here's a function where it has this input and we need this output and we'll teach you the skills to be able to do those those things which is important and uh, i think the current projections are by the next ten years or something like that, we're going to need 1.4 million programmers in the industry, but the projections are showing that we're only going to have about 400,000. So there's a huge gap, and we need to be doing something. and And mm-hmm. these boot camps are a right step in the correct direction, but I don't think it's the only approach we need to be thinking about right now.
0: So let's let's take the conversation in a little di- bit different direction too. Um, you know, our our industry is very interesting. So we find people from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, and degrees in other things, other than computer science, transferring their talents over to software development because they find a need to solve a problem in their field that's not being met, and they end up picking up coding skills on their own, and then you know solving some problem in that field. So I think that's a pretty amazing part of what we do.
1: Right, and and to to use an analogy to that. You- The programming part is just an aspect of a of a form of speaking, so to speak. It's a new language. Just like math is the language of numbers, and and programming is the language of computers. Mm -hmm. To be a good programmer, you don't need to know how to program. You need to know how to solve problems. And I think that's what's attracting a lot of people. Is they're like, hey, here's this creative endeavor, and they don't, you know, they see the art in it. Of I need to to do this this creative endeavor to solve a problem. And it just so happens that the way to do it is through the language of programming. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, after going through all of these uh, parts of education, um, is there anything that that you've really been able to apply it to that uh, you feel is like, um, like the the pinnacle project of you know all of your learnings or anything like that? Is there something that you've worked on that you just
1: feel very accomplished with? Uh. The, I don't know if there's a particular part that displays this, but it definitely came up when I was doing my masters, which is. The skill of being able to take a lot of information at once and digesting it and boiling it down and being able to do something useful to it is very much a trained skill. And I don't think most workplace environments give you a good, you know, how to deal with large amounts of information and process it, which academia actually does a really good job of. So it, it, if I had to pick a part of going through all those years of of academia it that's the thing that comes out the most is how to quickly take okay i need to know everything about this and i've got two days how to quickly learn to research consume digest condense down and then do what i need to with it in a very quick period of time and it's very as i said it's very much a learned skill and uh there's not a good way to do that in other places Mm
0: -hmm. And so you've you've become very agile uh, because of your experience and education, and uh, I, I know you've you've done some uh, pretty interesting work. You probably can't talk about, right? Um, you've yeah, ten
1: years with... of defense contracting,
0: so there's stuff I can't <laughs> mention. So so we won't get into that. So let's talk a little bit about hobby stuff because I know you like to do games. I know you've done some connect work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you like to do?
1: I like playing around with things that that. Uh, I like new toys. So I, I have been a lifelong gamer, so it was like, ooh, I'm programming now. Let's see how these games work. And so I really went down into the, the meat of what's the difference between a business app and the way a, way a game works. And and there are some big fundamental differences in the way you approach those problems. So that And that led me to a new way to think about solve problems in my day job. Uh, and I like teaching game design because I think it... It interests people and gets that passion back. So, if we can get them to write these interesting algorithms because they're playing around on a game, they're still learning to think and solve problems, and, and it exposes it in a, in a fun way that way. Uh, but then from there it came to, and then I did some connect stuff because I originally started playing around with it due to a a work thing, which I can't talk about what the exact algorithm <laughs> we were doing was. But then learning how those streams work and and dealing with that natural, and it was like, oh well, how do we how do we teach a computer to listen to a person, so to speak? And that was an interesting reverse problem because we've always been like, oh well, you have a keyboard and a mouse, and here's how you interface it with a with a computer, and mm-hmm. now you have no now i can just walk in front of the computer and do something and it knows to to respond and how do we deal with that type of natural user interaction i got really interested in that for a while and now just from when i was teaching at the doing all the discrete math teaching at the university i started playing around with a lot of hey math libraries on the on computers have severe problems one of which is things like the continuous number problem uh, where math or not math uh, computers are really bad at Processing binary num or not binary numbers, uh, real numbers, mm-hmm. because of the way binary representation of base two works, uh, and so I started looking at well, what are some ways we can get around that? And it and due to other things I needed for other little pet projects, started creating this math library in F# both as an excuse to learn F# and to hey, let's let's play around, you know, let's use a language meant for this type of processing to to do this. Uh, and started working on math libraries where, okay, I can get a random prime number. Uh, I can do things like iterate lists, like randomize lists because I, I can get a random prime number and do seed generation and things like that. Uh, and then I started working on, well, what if we wanted to do large scale probability and combinatorics type work, um which then requires really, really, really big integers. So I said, well, let's work on a data type where we have an integer that right now is being called, uh, its its data type name is natural for a natural number, and it goes from zero to as big as you ever want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have I have in the test somewhere, I think, there's a 128-bit integer that I can do full every mathematical operation on without having any problems whatsoever. And it was it's just all from, hey, now I know how computers think, now how can I cross apply that to solve this greater problem and if it ever i don't you know i don't think it'll necessarily become the next big open source project that everybody will be using but it came back to that i love to solve the problems and here's this problem of uh if you're talking about how many ways you can have a deck of cards well there's 52 Mm -hmm. cards in the deck and so there's 52 choices for the first card there's 51 for the second card 50 etc so that's 52 factorial but if you're talking about a 64-bit integer, the highest factorial value you could ever calculate is about 21 factorial. If you use some tricks, you can get about 26 factorial um, to, to store that number. So if we want really accurate mathematical computations on on these bigger numbers where the, the end number may not be that big, but we need to play with these big numbers to get down, let, let's find a way we can represent that. Um, and get around some of the flaws of, hey, we the reason we have a 62-bit integer is because there's 62 control paths into the the CPU and all these things, so that's where we can pipeline things out. But if we're on base 2, you can do things at a binary level, and then we as people generally think in base 10, so there's a shortcut there, but then how can we we group things if I am already have operations that deal with you know 32 bits and I can do those as a block how do I chain those operations to be expandable to X number of bits and it's again it's a new way to solve and, and think about the problem and, and I've those are the types of things that that make me not sleep because I'm <laughs> I'm staying up all night going how can we we chain these operations and and what is the most efficient way to do it I I remember that the next big thing I need to add to the library is actually taking these unlimited size Numbers and doing a two string, so you can actually display them. It took a while to figure out, you know, how do how do I take this thing of unlimited? So I can't just do a two string on each individual component because then there's, you know, issues with how they stack up. So how do you how do you write a two string? Do you know how to write a generic two string on an integer? No, I can't can't say
0: that I do. So it's it, it Thinking, you know, at this large scale, how it can just be immensely difficult
1: so it took a while to figure out but first you do a mod 10 and you get what the the first lowest value would be and then you divide by 10 and you repeat that back and forth and you just start building up the string now if you're talking about uh integers of
0: infinite capacity too then uh you could run into potential memory errors doing this process and oh yeah it's gonna take a while yeah um there's a whole slew of new problems that I think you've
1: stumbled upon. There are, but I won't know them until I find them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> yes. So, so this is the type of thing I do, and it's like, okay, I, I want to really work my brain. Let, let's solve these creative problems and, and see mm-hmm. where that takes us down the path. Now, do you, do you see an end
0: use for this type of thing like uh do you have you know maybe
1: some nasa project in mind or something not really but the 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 full end goal is i i would like to be able to do it on I, i say on real numbers but of course there's issues with doing it on real numbers that have no termination and and things like that uh but It led me down the the intellectual curiosity of, well, what if we had our same integer and we had it to a certain position, but then we moved everything to where it was integer math with a scientific notation, and then we dealt with how to deal with that. And, and work on that framework. And then maybe we can have arbitrarily sized exact position, real numbers. And I think that will help solve a lot of problems. If we had a library that could do that. Though mm-hmm. so it's the baby steps to get to that. Interesting. Um, so you, you said that's up on GitHub? It is on GitHub. It's on my GitHub Freestyle Coder. Uh, I believe the name of the project is Math. Uh, before we close up, let's talk a little bit about
0: uh, your conference. Okay. So, um, by the time this
1: airs, you probably won't have calls for speakers open. No, it's going to be open for about another week. It was actually supposed to close like ten days ago, but I, between Music City Code and Code Palooza and starting that new job and having to go do my my initial first week out at the office, it's like I'm not going to touch these things for another two weeks. So you know, my my pain is your is your gain. So what what year is this for you? This is year three. Year three. So what can we expect? Um, I uh, well. One of the things we decided to add this year is because uh, we really wanted to get more people in the community involved. Is we have both the traditional sixty-minute session length, but we also have thirty-minute session lengths. So if you're a new speaker or you have more of a, a niche topic, we'll have these time blocks that will be nicely offset from the other traditional hour-long talks where we can we can get some things like that. And we've from from looking through the the database, we've been getting a reasonable uh, type of 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 sessions coming in for those things so i think the the concept is being welcomed but we'll have to see how it plays out when i see how many i get and i have to arrange a schedule around 30 minute time blocks and whatnot but that's the the big experiment we're making this year is like what if we have these multiple you know time length things and so if you don't if you can't fill the full hour here's a way to do it and it also then as i said for new speakers hey you don't have to come and fill an hour Get your feet wet. Here's a 30-minute time slot. Take something you have passion in, display it, and see what it's like to be up in front of that room. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the JavaScript conferences do
0: 30 minute session blocks. And I, I think it's been pretty successful for them from what I've heard from attendees of those
1: conferences. Yeah, I've the the, the interesting part for from my aspect is I have heard of other conferences, especially in the the Ruby and Elixir community. They they normally do 30 minute talks. Um, I haven't seen a conference that tries to do two different session lengths and makes them happy at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be the interesting part is, is can I successfully get the schedule and not have weirdness going on at all times? And True. Yeah.
0: I, I think you might uh, find some issue with uh, somebody attending a 30-minute session. Then there's an hour session at the same time. So they have a 30-minute gap, that type of thing. But uh, you're a smart guy. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Yep. <laughs> we'll get something figured out.
1: So uh, where where exactly is the venue? It is at the Von Braun Center in downtown Huntsville, Alabama. And our conference hotel is the Embassy Suites right next door connected through a skywalk. So even though I have it in October because that's when Huntsville, Alabama has the best weather ever. I'm not kidding when I say that. You completely can, like, not go outdoors once you get to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And the von Braun Center—that sounds like uh, something very space-related. It is very space-related. So, as as if you do not know, Huntsville is known as the Rocket City because that is where Werner von Braun, when he left Germany, came and basically invented the space program by creating all the Saturn. Initially, the Saturn 1, but then up to the Saturn 5 missile, which is what took everybody to the moon. So there's lots of von Braun named things all over Huntsville. And it's also the home of the uh, U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp and all that stuff. So we're, we very much embrace our legacy. Of, so there, there's lots of things to do. When there's lots to, of to things uh, to do, yes. attend or speak or, or be at the
0: conference. Yes. Awesome. So we can find out more about that
1: at? At com.
0: And uh, are you writing a blog? Or can we find more about you?
1: Uh, I, You can mostly find me on Twitter. I try to be active there. I have a blog that I haven't touched in a long time. It, it keeps being on the to-do list. <laughs> uh, and hopefully, I can, now that I'm not teaching, uh, hopefully I can get back to that now. Teaching is a much larger time sink than you think. Because if you think about it, if you were in college and you were going to three hours worth of a class and then you were spending three to four hours on homework... I was going to three hours worth of class, then plus for preparation and grading tests and everything, doing about twenty extra hours a week on can, top of everything. So I can only
0: imagine uh, being being a conference speaker and, and hosting workshops. Um, I know that probably for every hour uh, session I create, there's at least ten to forty hours of work that's put into that one hour.
1: And and I was doing two hours a week mm-hmm. at the university.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's a very uh, big involvement. So um, we can find you on Twitter, and uh, we'll, we'll put some links up for the DevSpace conference, and uh, we'll hope, hope people come out and uh, see the conference.
1: And uh, it was great talking to you, Chris. Great talking to you, too. It's a pleasure to always. Yes, Absolutely. I know y'all can't see that we're shaking hands, but I, I like to—I <laughs> uh, like to do things you can't see on podcasts just to be like, "Ha!" <laughs> <laughs> we've been friends for a while, so uh, any any type of awkwardness
0: is totally normal. Cool. Yep. All right, man. Thanks a lot. You're welcome.